All right, let's go to Luke chapter 13. To some of you, this will be new. To others, it will be old and familiar. But I'm going to share, beginning with verse 23, Jesus' answer to a question. And it's an odd one. Let me just read Luke 13, beginning with verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence you are. Then shall you begin, begin, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and and yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first. There are first which shall be last. This was Jesus' answer to a question. How many are going to be saved? Are there just going to be a few? Well, this teaching, we haven't really talked about in a long time. We just haven't come to those passages that bring this topic up. But this is one of those passages that you absolutely have to gain in context. You cannot pull this verse out of the context in which it's given. So we need to go back to what's happened right before it. So let's go back into this, to like verse 10, same chapter, verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, bowed together and could in no wise lift, her, lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thy infirmity. Laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered and said, Thou hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox and his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, in these eighteen years be loosed from the, from the bond of the Sabbath day. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and people rejoiced with all the glorious things that were done by him. Then said unto he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took, cast into his garden, and it grew, and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and, and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then into this verse. We recognize in these two examples, these are two very brief examples of what's largely taught in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus teaches in Matthew 13 seven parables, back to back. He does them very precisely, and these are brief mentions of two of those. 
Let's look at them again. Verse 18, then said he, unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? So here's the question. Here's the context that we have to get. Jesus is not talking in these passages. He's not talking about people who are lost. We have to shift our mind out of that immediately. This whole passage, these two examples, and the one that I've just read about the weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth, all of that has nothing to do with lost people. Hard adjustment to make after what we have been taught for so long. Anytime we hear those terms, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And a matter of fact, I read some commentaries today just looking at this, and every one of them assigned that phrase connected to hell. And truly, you'll never find that phrase connected to the teaching on hell, ever. Strange. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth sounds so much like what we would expect in hell. But it has nothing to do with hell. And again, strange, if you don't gain this in context, then we got a real problem. We're fixing to have to teach something, strangely be for something, that you and I have largely stood most of our lives against. Because if we don't understand this in context, what just happened in the passages that I read, 23 through 30? That there was someone who was inside the kingdom who could see Abraham, who could see Isaac, who could see Jacob, and got cast out. What does that erase in our mind? That erases once saved, always saved. So we better understand this in context. This and a dozen more passages just like it. The teaching on the, on the ten virgins. Five get to go in, five don't get to go in. Typical teaching, five saved, five lost. Absolutely can't be true. Five shut out, equally saved is the five who went in. Conceptually, this is a shift for some people. You know, Dale taught it, I, I've been teaching this for years, and again, our passages just haven't come around to this. So we look at this passage in context. It says here in verse 18, the king, or 19, it's like a grain of mustard seed, the smallest of all grains according to, to the book of Matthew, which a man took and cast into his garden. He planted it, and it grew, and it waxed a great tree. What's the problem with that? If I were to take a cotton seed and I planted it, what would you expect that cotton seed to become? A cotton plant. This tall, this tall, whatever tall you can get cotton to be. But what would you never expect to happen? That it would turn into a tree. You would never expect a grain of mustard seed, which is supposed to produce a bush, and that that bush creates a healing bomb that could be used. You would never expect that grain of mustard seed to become a tree. It's an unnatural act. Something had to happen. And the birds, which are always... Please don't misunderstand. The birds in the parables of Jesus, these are not good birds. These are not kind birds. They're not, they're not doing great things. This is what has happened. This illustration is what happened. When the grain of mustard seed, that which God gave us, that he gave us intending that, he, that what he gave us would become a healing bomb to touch the nations. What happened to it? That which God gave us that would bring healing to one another, salvation to one another, suddenly took on a public agenda and became a nation, a religious nation all of its own, with lobbyists and positions 
and all kinds of things that have come with that. A tree which represents nations and what came to roost in it. Evil. He's, but he's noticed, he's saying, that's not, I'm not talking about the world outside the kingdom. I'm talking about what's happening in the kingdom. This is talking about saved people. This is talking about what's happening within his kingdom. It's easier to understand when you read it in Matthew because it says the kingdom of heaven is like. But over and over in those seven parables, he says the kingdom of heaven is like. So he's telling us this is what's happening inside his kingdom. Not outside. This isn't a message to lost people. When he starts talking about those things in Matthew chapter 13 that says there was a, a man who found a treasure in a field. And he goes and buys it. But he ultimately has to leave the treasure in the field. Who's the man walking in the field? Well, typical teaching is that that's a lost man. The treasure is Jesus. And he goes and sells all that he has. Wait a minute, that's, that's bad doctrine right there. He would never teach that. That the way that you gain Jesus is by selling all that you have. So the answer becomes, well, no, you don't have to sell all you have. You just have to be willing to sell all that you have. Poor answer. The man walking in the field searching for the treasure is Jesus. Who's the treasure? Exodus 19, verse 5. What does he tell them? You're a nation of priests, a peculiar treasure. They are the treasure. A man walking in the field. To the Jew first, there it is. He came walking, looking for the Jews. They said no. Where did he have to leave them? In the field. He says there's a merchant man looking for a pearl. And he finds it, a beautiful pearl. He sells all that he has. And he buys the pearl and he takes it with him. Who's the merchant man? Seeking for the pearl. Who always comes seeking that which is lost? Who comes seeking? Jesus. It tells us that's Jesus. He finds this pearl. He sells all that he has. He becomes nothing. So that he can pay for that pearl. But this time, he gets to take the pearl. Who's the pearl? Us. The church. Notice the pearl. Becomes more lustrous the more you rub it. The more you use it, the better it shines. What's the value of it if you divide it? Zero. We ought to take a lesson from that. The divisions that we're allowing in church today is destroying the beauty of what God paid such a price for. The pearl. Jews won't touch them. Jews won't own them because they're born in the muck and the mire of the ocean. How are they formed? Here's this oyster, speck of something, penetrates its side. He streaks it with blood and water, forms the pearl, and then the oyster had to die for the pearl to come forth. Great picture. That's the church. You see, these parables are powerful, but he's talking about what's happening in the kingdom. This isn't a message of how you become saved. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, you will find the message of salvation, justification, rarely. You'll find the message of salvation, sanctification, often. So this is a message to those of us who are saved, not to those who are lost. The second illustration, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. This is another one of those that's been taught so badly. Leaven is never good. Leaven, in any illustration, is never going to teach about something good being added. A woman, it doesn't say a virgin, it says a woman, a false church, a pseudo-church, is what's being represented here. What happens? They fold a lie into the story of something that comes in threes, three measures. What does three always tell us about? It's always the Trinity. So what's happening? 
what Jesus is saying is going to happen within his kingdom. There's going to emerge false churches. Going to sow a lie into the teaching of the Trinity. Has it worked? Absolutely. How do we know it? Because we, we believe in God and trust him. We believe in Jesus and trust him. We know about the Holy Spirit and do not trust him. It worked. We do not believe, put our faith, confidence and trust that there's equality within the Trinity. It absolutely worked. Folded it in until the whole lump, everything had been touched by that lie. What Jesus is saying, that's his illustration right there. Look at it again. Like a woman took and hid three measures of meal until the whole had been penetrated by the evil. So Jesus is talking. His context here, leading into this conversation, is not about the salvation of the lost. It's talking about what's going to happen within his kingdom. He's talking about what's going to happen with us. And we don't have the confidence to believe that this is actually talking about us. The seven parables generally taught in Matthew chapter 13 are taught, every one of them, as something good that God is doing. All seven are warnings about what's happening in the kingdom that we're supposed to be mindful of. Because he tells them, those of you who have ears to hear, hear, hear this, understand what I'm trying to tell you. So we, we come to, back to verse 23. Then said one unto, unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? They have heard these warnings. They have heard what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. They've heard these illustrations. And what do you think it leaves them believing? If all that's true, just how many are going to be saved? If it's going to be like this, the healing bomb turning into a tree, and there's no healing going on. Or if there's this lie being folded into the Trinity, how many are going to be saved? That's the question that they're asking, and, and it's, a, it's a penetrating question. It's kind of strange that he, they ask him this broad question, and basically his answer is, you've got to be concerned about one. He says in verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate. That word strive is one that we don't use very much because it has a, the context of I've got to work for this. I've got to try. It's not what this word strive means. This requires that mindset change. If we can quit thinking about justification, the salvation of the spirit that, that leads to eternal life and recognize that's not what's being talked about. What is being talked about is the salvation of our soul, sanctification, that doesn't lead to eternal life. It leads to the reward. It leads to that time when we're going to stand before Jesus and give an account. That's the salvation of our soul. He's talking to us here about our life as Christians. He's talking to us about what we do with the life he's given us. So they're asking, Lord, just how many are going to be successful, saved, sanctified when that day comes, when that Bema time comes, when the wedding comes, how many are truly going to get to enter in? So we understand contextually, he's, he's saying something very different, just like it is with the 10 virgins. Again, we see five saved and five lost. That's a typical teaching. It cannot be. Why? He calls them 10 virgins. All of them have the same standing. They all have oil, Holy Spirit. They all are anticipating the coming of the bridegroom. The only difference, and it points this out very clearly in Matthew 25, the only difference, all of them have oil in their lamp, 
Some of them have oil in a, in a container besides that. If that oil is the Holy Spirit, what's he trying to tell us? It's the intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Not that gets us saved, but that allows us to go into the wedding feast. You see, the, in, we have to understand the concept of, of what a wedding looked like in this day and time. And I don't have my flip chart in here to draw it, but it was based on an oriental wedding. There would be a fire built here. Up here, behind the fire, would be the nuptial room. Odd, but this is the way it worked. The guest would arrive, and based on how close, how intimate they were with the bridegroom, is where they were, were allowed to be seated. If you knew the bridegroom well, if you understood and you knew him intimately, you would sit near the fire where it was brightest. If you had an opportunity to know him, but you had ignored those opportunities, you would be seated, and this, it teaches this in Luke 14 as well, you would be seated away from the fire in the darkness where there would be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth at the, the ceremony, but at such a distance, you would know. Why would you be weeping? Because I had an opportunity and intimacy to be up front. I had been given the same opportunity to be sitting and placed in a position of relationship with the bridegroom, and I ignored it. How do we gain that intimacy with Jesus? Through the Holy Spirit. It's that intimacy with the Holy Spirit that allows us to be in those positions. And Jesus is trying to tell us here in this passage, when they say, how many are going to be saved? He says, enter in, in the straight gate. Strive to. What will stop us? What are we striving against? Well, first of all, the world has no desire for us to be in that position. Satan has no desire for us to be in that position. Our own flesh has no desire for us to be in that position. We're contending with the world. We're contending with Satan. We're contending with ourselves, our flesh, all the time. And he, and he says, if you don't strive against those things, you will not be there. If you don't gain victory over your flesh, over your hesitation, over your doubt, over your fear, if you don't receive the means by which he gave you to overcome that, which is the Holy Spirit, in abundance, you will not enter in. And Jesus is saying in this passage, you've got to leave because I don't know you. It wasn't that he didn't recognize them. That word no is intimate. That is like Adam knew his wife. And they had a child. That's the kind of intimate no he's talking about. And they were in such a place that they could see Abraham, they could see Isaac, and they could see Jacob. We know that they are in that midst. And he says, but you have no place in here because I don't know you. I don't, I've never been intimate with you. Saved? Absolutely. But there will come a time at that wedding when there are going to be those, according to this teaching, who are inside and celebrating with the king. And those who are in the outer darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. All saved in very different places in relationship to Jesus. And he's given this warning. How many? He's saying there's going to come a day, and you're not going to know when, that the master's going to stand up with all this mix of people saved. <coughs> Can I get that in this large banquet room? You know, my sister Donna that lives in Kansas City had a dream. It was, it was horrifying. Donna is one of the most faithful, loving, obedient people I know. And had this dream, it just rocked her world because in that moment, she, and, and everybody was dressed and she was in her rags. 
And she, and, and she was desperately trying to find her dress, desperately trying to find the banquet robe. Couldn't find it. And she hears that door shut and realizes, I have been shut out. Whoa, what a strange thought. And to recognize that the only difference between those who are in and those who are out is whether or not I accepted the extra oil that I carry in a flask that will continue to fill that lamp so that I will be ready when the bridegroom comes. Jesus is saying, you got to strive for this because there are so many things that will contend with you not to be saved. That's free. Justification. This is contending for the kingdom. This is contending for what God has established for you. It's contending. Because I guarantee you, there are many, many things. I would add to that, you're going to have to contend with religion. You're going to have to contend with friends. You're going to have to contend with lots and lots of things to be able to step into the fullness of what God wants. It's got to become, according to him, most important thing. Because he says, when the master, and no one knows when this is, when the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, I mean, we know who he is. Lord, Lord, open unto us and he shall answer and say, I know not who you are. Then shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. And he shall say, I tell you, I know not who you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Interesting word, iniquity. Iniquity is equally sin, but it's a strange word because it's like, if I were to teach you that to be saved, you had to put your faith in Jesus Christ and turn in circles for three minutes. That's iniquity. That's telling the truth and twisting, perverting it. What's our perversion that's robbing us today from entry into that moment? What's the perversion? That we can be Christians without the Holy Spirit. That we can be godly without the provision that he gave us who is himself, the Holy Spirit. That's the perversion. And it's just being believed. So would we be surprised then at that day when of a banquet when... When those who have lived and whose lives have been the evidence of the reality of God, who have said yes to the Holy Spirit, who've opened to that reality and been in the Spirit, those things which God instructed us to be in the Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit come, speak through us, use our hands, use our hearts, so that our life becomes the evidence of Him, would we not expect those to be in the intimate place with Him, uh, with the bridegroom at that time, and those who just chose to go to church and be religious and whose life looks like the evidence of religion and not of Christ himself, the supernatural God, would you not expect those to be outside? Absolutely. This is not teaching something that's conceptually hard to believe. Why would he tell us this? Because he wants us to know this life does matter. The thought that we live, we become saved, we do the best we can with the life that we have, and on the day that we die, we go to heaven, and that's the end of the story. Jesus is saying that is not the story. That has never been true. That is not what the Bible says. It matters what you do with that life after you're saved because there's going to be a banquet. There's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a millennial reign. Some will reign. Some will serve. Some actually will spend some time in a furnace of fire being purified. All of that's going to happen. That's all real. And if I know it, and he teaches it right here, then I would be foolish not to look at my own life and say, God, show me, teach me, let me see where I am deficits because I definitely want to enter into that banquet. 
If you're going to talk about it, I would like to go in. I don't want to be standing outside saying, God, let me in. I don't know you. I recognize you. And we're not talking about heaven. We're, we're talking about a banquet. We're talking about a wedding feast. We're talking about the reason that we're sanctified. You know, this is, again, conceptually, these are, these are not easy things. So what happens to our body when we die? There's lots of questions about these things. But one of the things that's for real is that I will first need my body again at the consummation of the marriage between the bridegroom and his bride. Strange. Jesus is trying to tell us something in this passage and hoping that conceptually we can get it. Verse 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham. So in this banquet, you're going to be able to see him. Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. You're going to see them in the kingdom of God. And you yourself are thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Behold, there are last which shall be first. And there are first which shall be last. He's saying those which you assign in honors, positions of honor because of humanity. Because of what we think they did, they may go in last. The little lady who took care of me in the nursery many years ago may go in first. Because what we assign is greatness. God and his economy is not great. He's got a whole different set of measures as to what greatness really looks like. Interesting passage. Where we're coming to in, in this walk with Jesus is going to bring us into several more of these. We're, we'll actually get to Matthew 25 eventually when Jesus taught that. And we'll look at some of these illustrations that he gives and how strangely they've been taught. But how really it's speaking of one thing, and that's life inside the kingdom. What's going to cause it to stumble and where victory can be gained. He's talking in context about life inside the kingdom. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can just take this passage and let you speak. And I pray, Lord, that we would, by asking, receiving in the Spirit, the clarity of what you're saying, Helping us to recognize, Lord, that this life does matter. That yes, I'm going to heaven when I die because you've promised, absent from the body, present with you. I'm going to be in your presence. But I pray, Lord, that I would not be so foolish as to recognize that you've told us that there's a day of accounting coming when we stand at the judgment seat. There's a day of accounting, not judgment, not whether we're guilty or innocent. Because only the saved will be there. But a day of accounting, of reckoning. What did I do with the life that you gave? What did I do with the Holy Spirit that you gave me, made available to me, so that I could go and occupy this land, to touch lives, to see the power, the authority change them? You gave that to us. And there's a day of reckoning coming. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to, to accept this. And let it touch us and change us to penetrate deeply. And we just speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.